Hey, what a, what a thrill. I think I don't enjoy any sound more than the sound of a congregation singing. And we have a congregation that sings. Well done. Keep it up. Let's sing it out uh, every time we get a chance as a body of believers. Um, it is encouraging. Open up in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, three weeks ago, we started a series, sorry, not a series, a, a section in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, that addresses some, we might say, difficult, maybe controversial issues related to gender. Uh, this particular issue um, or text refers to what women should wear in church, uh, how women should learn in church, in how they should submit to male authority in church, how they should, or it says in verse 15 of chapter 2, they will be saved through childbearing. Um, easy stuff, right? Easy, non-controversial, simple to understand stuff. Uh, I got through about a third of it three weeks ago and didn't finish my sermon. And let me assure you, it is not because I'm afraid of dealing with these issues, although I understand why some might be afraid of dealing with these issues. It was because I'm long-winded and didn't get through my points like I wanted to. And so I only got through uh, the first one. And then the last couple weeks, we had the privilege of baptizing a couple of our members uh, two weeks ago. And then last week, we had the, um, the privilege to take communion together as a church family, which was a, a, an amazing uh, act of God to unite us together uh, as he does through the Lord's table. But now, uh, we're going to jump back into First Timothy, and we're going to get back into this text. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Off. This is our approach to preaching Scripture is that we preach through the Word of God. And if we were to be devoted to some sort of topical approach where we kind of pick and choose what topics we think we need to hear, we'd probably never preach on this text. <laughs> we'd probably just skip over this thing. Uh, but because we are convinced that this is the Word of God, we know that God has something good for us here, uh, valuable for us as a church here. And so our intention is to go through it, to understand it, to apply it, and to let the Word of God set the agenda for our lives. And after studying it, I am convinced that God is wiser than man and that the things He puts in the Word of God are meant to be taught to the church. And that's what we're going to do again this morning. So I am going to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let me remind you that this is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. He is writing to a church or sorry, writing to an individual, Timothy, uh, who was sent to a church in Ephesus that was dysfunctional. False teachers abounded. Uh, the men in the church quarreled. The women in the church tried to usurp authority. There were all kinds of issues happening. False teaching about the role of the law. Uh, unbelief about the power of the gospel. A pervasive greediness. All of these things we gather by reading the entire letter and we see the kind of things that Timothy needed to deal with in the church. That was what was going on in the body and so Paul was giving him directions for addressing it. In chapter 2 verse 1, you see that he says to, the, to Timothy that, hey Timothy, as you're helping this church, first of all, he says, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all, utmost importance, priority in the church, Timothy, is get your people to pray together. Here's the kind of praying that I want you to pray. And he lists, and we had a couple sermons on praying. Now, that was not controversial. That was 
basically stating something that all Christians have recognized as valuable from the very beginning, that Christians ought to pray and that prayer ought to be a significant portion of the service of the gathered church. Then he moves from prayer as the first of all priority and he goes into the role of men and women in the church. First of all, pray. Secondly, get your gender roles right. Uh, First of all, pray corporately. Secondly, men and women know how to work together in the church. Now, just to get some context, I want you to see the flow of thought that Timothy is being taught here and being instructed from Paul, that Paul has some um, logic to what he's doing, and I want you to see the context to help us understand this. You can start in verse 3 of chapter 2. He's referring, he's in a section where he's talking about the church praying. And there's a type of prayer that they need to pray, namely that they are to be praying for kings, verse 2, for all those who are in high authority, uh, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life. This is referring not only to being or to praying in such a way that just for peace in the land, that is something to pray for. We do pray for that. But it would also include praying for the salvation of leaders. Is evangelistic prayer. We know that because in verse 3 he says, this is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's heart is that all people be saved, thus pray that way for all people to be saved. Pray that people come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, then he goes into a short, concise explanation of the gospel, verse 5. For there's one God. And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There in just two verses, verse 5 and 6, he summarizes the gospel. There's one God. There's one mediator, Jesus Christ. This mediator was sent to, to earth to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom to pay for the sins of the people who would trust him. This is the work of Christ. It is to demonstrate the amazing love of God and his desire for all people to be saved. Christ came to give his life as a ransom for all, it says, and thus that ought to shape our hearts that we are to desire the salvation of all. Now keep this in mind as we get to the next section. Paul begins this section by calling people to pray, and the reason or the motivation that is meant to spur on this kind of prayer is the love of God for the world, especially demonstrated in the work of Christ in the gospel. He's couching this discussion of rules, before he even gets there, he is calling our attention to the goodness of God, the love of God, the fact that God came into the world in the person of Christ to die for the sins of people. It is a reminder of his love. Now, wouldn't it be kind of sad if God sent his son, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose again, went back to heaven, and gave us nothing else for direction for how to live as Christians. What if the only thing that we ever had in the Bible was 
Repent, believe, trust Jesus, period, the end. That's the end of the Bible, end of the book. No more revelation, no more direction, no more instruction. And we kind of had to figure out all the other things on our own. We had to figure out how to walk in a sinful world in a way that's obedient to Christ. We had to figure out how to organize our churches together. We had to figure out how to do all these things on our own. Um, that would be difficult, uh, that this is not what God has done. What God has done is he's given us not only the way to salvation, we see this in the passages we just read, but he also goes further into discussing how the saved Christian and how the church corporately of gathered believers ought to live and ought to organize themselves. So God is very helpful in this regard. It's not merely, here's your ticket to heaven. It's, I'm going to give you directions to bless you. This is the best way to live. This is how God intends the church to organize itself. So when we come to the discussion about roles in the church, the roles of women in the church in particular, in the section we're supposed to be looking at right here this morning, we have to understand that this is part of God's good design. That God not only has given us free salvation through Christ, but God in His grace has given us blessed directions to how to organize ourselves together, how to align ourselves with His grand design and His purposes in redemption. This is good. So when we approach the discussion of gender, we approach it with this in mind. God intends to do us good in this. God intends not to constrict or to restrain us from things that would bless us. He intends to help us understand where true blessing is found. How do we organize ourselves so as to align ourselves with God's purposes in the world and in the church? So let's read the text. We're going to start in Verse 9, verse 8, basically Paul has to tell the men to stop fighting and start praying together. It's kind of the bookend of the previous section where he's speaking about prayer. And then in verse 9, he begins to address the women. He says in verse 9, likewise, just as he addressed men, now he's addressing women, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but, or sorry, but Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So we started this a few weeks ago. We got through point one. We stopped. And some of you came up to me and said, you're going to finish the rest of this, right? <laughs> this is, I want to know what the rest of this says because all we got through was kind of point one. Yes, we're going to try to get to the very end of chapter 15 or uh, verse 15. And uh, we're going to do that, though, by starting back at the beginning and just making sure we recap because some of the stuff that lays the foundation will help us understand the whole. So Genesis is where it all begins. You don't have to necessarily turn there because I'm going to just remind you of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Genesis lays the foundation for gender. 
In the beginning, God created everyone and everything. The first two people he made were male and female. Now, there's things we need to know about these two individuals. First of all, one's male, that's Adam. One's female, that's Eve. And they are made in the image of God. What that means is that they're both sharing an equal dignity before God. They are both sharing an equal dignity before God. They are both to be valued. They are both to be respected. Male and female together are equal in the sense of their standing before God. There is no differentiation in terms of how much dignity they deserve, how much honor they should receive, because male and female are both image bearers, and not one gender shares it more than another. We get that in Genesis chapter 1. We also get in Genesis chapter 1, you can jot these verses down if you want to go read them later, verse 28. Male and female together are given the command to rule and subdue the, the world, the created world. And so Adam and Eve together are both created in the image of God, and then they are both together given this mandate, you could call it the creational mandate, where they are given this responsibility to rule, to subdue, to cultivate the land, to, to, to dominate as image bearers, reflecting the glory of God all over the globe that God put them on. And so here's the second thing you might say from Genesis. They're equal in their standing. The second thing is they're equal in their participation in God's plans for the world. Male and female have equal standing as God's image bearers. Male and female are equally participants in the redemptive plan of God in the world. They're both given the command to rule and subdue the world. They're both given this command to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread out all over the, the world. Then we come to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, it zooms in a little bit, and in Genesis chapter 2, he talks more specifically about how God made Adam from the dust and how God made Eve from Adam's rib, and we get more specifically the roles that these genders are supposed to play. Adam and Eve are the same, and then they are given differing roles. Adam has this specific role. Adam's role, it is said, is to work and keep in the garden. These two words, now working, building, cultivating, keeping is more like protecting, guarding, watching. Uh, this is the male's role. The woman is created in the next portion after man, and Eve is given a different role. She is called a helper. She is called a helper corresponding to Adam. Her role is to be supportive, to come alongside. She is to enlist all her energy, all her efforts in aiding in Adam's work. And this is the role. It's complementarian. It is a role of one is leading the charge and one is backing the one who's leading and helping and supporting and pushing forward and, and, and upholding and praying for and all those things. Different roles. Uh, this is not hard for me to understand as someone who's played sports all my life. It's like, which is more important, the point guard or the center on the basketball team? Uh, they're both important. They have different roles. And this is kind of what the Bible is beginning to tell us. and starts in Genesis, and this only lays the foundation. These truths get more unpacked as you go, that Genesis lays the foundation of the equality of the genders, that they're both equally useful and participants of God's redemptive plan, but they are both going to play different roles in the world and in the church and in the home. And so we get to this passage in 1 Timothy. We get to this passage in 1 Timothy, and there's kind of three things that he addresses. The woman's appearance, that's the point that we got through in the previous time we were here. A woman's learning, 
That's going to start in verse 11. And verse 15 is going to talk about a woman's childbearing. Let's just review the first part, the woman's appearance. He, he, he begins in verse 9. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In other words, not all these other things, good works. Uh, there's really three things he's banning here for women. And keep in mind, this is specifically referring to the public gathering of the church. Uh, first, women are not to be drawing attention to their bodies. That's contained in the idea of modesty. That word there in verse 9, modesty and self-control, both of those words have sexual connotations. These women were not to be trying to draw in the attention to get other people to look at them in a lustful manner. They were not to be using their bodies to draw attention to themselves. Secondly, their beauty. In the church, some people that Timothy had to deal with, some of these women were coming in and they were doing everything they could with their beauty to flaunt it like a peacock. They would strut in, they would put everything on their head, these, these braids and these expensive clothings, and they would try to get people to notice them for their beauty. Now, let me just say, we said this last time, but I'll say it again, Paul is not anti-braids. <laughs> if you gave your little girl braids on the way to church this morning, we are not excommuting you. We're not even saying you're in sin because that's not what this says. It actually, the word translated to English is kind of hard, but it more refers to ornate, overly elaborate hairstyles where you do all this stuff. And in the ancient times, what would often happen is your, your, your precious um, gold and jewels would be wrapped into your head and you'd put it all on your, on your face to make yourself look beautiful. And it was a way to draw attention to your beauty. It was a way to draw, go over the top. It was some elaborate hairstyle interwoven with all kinds of precious jewelry. And this is what Paul is saying. Don't act like the peacock in the church service where all attention is meant to be directed to God and worship. Don't be trying to draw it to yourself and your beauty. So don't draw attention to your body. Don't draw attention to your beauty. And thirdly, don't draw attention to your bank account. I did three B's so you can remember that. Thirdly, don't let people be, or don't try to draw people to your bank account. And you get that from the idea here where he's talking about costly attire. And some people in the church in, in those, these days would find the most expensive clothing, uh, the most expensive jewelry, the most expensive equipment to bring in with them, and they would flaunt it around, again, not necessarily trying to draw attention to their body or their beauty, but they wanted to show everyone how rich they were. And in some, unfortunately, in some churches, if you were rich, you got, you got more attention. You were the favorite. It's like, hey, there's going to be a big giver because look at what kind of purse they have. Uh, clearly, they have a lot of money, and they would get all the attention. And so here's Paul's uh, number one thing he's addressing to the women is their appearance. You're not trying to draw attention to your body. You're not trying to draw attention to your beauty. You're not even trying to draw attention to your bank account. It's not about you. It's not about you. And instead, he'll say in verse 10, what should you draw attention to? What's proper for women who profess godliness? Good works. Good works. What are you trying to draw attention to in your life as a woman? What are you trying to draw attention to? When people think of you, what's the first thing they're going to? Our, our culture is obsessed with beauty, right? The billions of dollars that are spent on surgeries and procedures and clothing and cosmetics 
indicate an overwhelming desire to be fashionable. One author speaking of this said, over the centuries, women have mauled and manipulated just about every body part, lips, eyes, waists, skulls, foreheads, feet, that did not quite fit into the cookie-cutter ideal of a particular era's fashion. In China, feet were bound and women were crippled because small feet were considered beautiful. In Africa, infants had their necks wrapped in leather so that their necks would be elongated because that was considered beautiful. Uh, when big foreheads were in, in the 1600s, I believe it was, women would literally pluck out the hair up to the top of their head so that their foreheads would look bigger. I don't know why that was attractive, but that's what they used to do back then. In the 1600s also, women that were considered overweight were bled, and chic women swallowed tapeworms. Ancient Egyptians used to use a kind of acid drop in their eyes because the, the drop would create a sort of glittering, shining thing in their eyes, and it eventually caused them to go blind sure eventually they decided that wasn't worth it anymore. Sounds primitive, right? But what's happening in our day? Uh, billions of dollars being spent on looking right. Billions of dollars being spent on getting the right stuff. The interesting thing is in those days you probably had in a small village only 10, 20, 30 other women to compare yourself to. And according to those 20, you could see you were either beautiful or not, and you'd look around, and that would be your measure of beauty. What do we do today, right? Everywhere you look, online, you can have the opportunity to compare yourself and your beauty with the airbrushed model. Every celebrity movie star could become the standard of beauty for you. Every Instagram celebrity or even friend that you follow becomes the standard that you gauge yourself and your own beauty. And so women could be tempted to do everything and ev anything to make themselves look pretty. And in the church, we are to be different. What does Paul say? Be modest. Be respectable. He's not saying be, be plain Jane. He's not saying don't care at all about how you look. Be well-ordered is the idea. Put energy into how you look. Think about it. But don't make it all about drawing attention to yourself. Be known for good works is what he's saying. Be known for good works. I was just, I'm reading through um, uh, Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. I'm on the second volume of this big thing and it's really fun, and I'm going to be probably boring you uh, with sections from that book because everything I read tends to end up in my sermons at some point or another. I think I have two illustrations from that book in this morning's message. You'll get another one later. But I'm reading about this, uh, this deacon in Spurgeon's church, and he, he, there's this chapter titled The Pastor's Fellow Workers, and there he says that his best deacon was a woman. Her name was Mrs. Bartlett. She was in charge of the women's Sunday school, basically because one of the teachers didn't show up one morning, and she kind of got put in charge. And when she started, there were three women in attendance. And by the end of her ministry, she had somewhere between 900 and 1,000 women who were discipled by her, taught by her, and then joined the church because of her ministry. 
And Spurgeon goes on about a page and a half just extolling this woman's character. And as I'm reading that and I'm reflecting on this passage, here's a woman who was known not for her beauty, that didn't go down in history, not for her riches, that didn't go down in history, but for her good works, that went down in history. That got written down and remembered. He writes, she was a woman of intense force of character. She believed with all her heart and therefore acted with decision and power. Uh, she, she is energetic in the work of the Lord. He writes, when anything flagged, she seemed only to throw out more energy. She waited upon God with more fervency. She pushed forward to resolve to conquer. She did not beat the air or run at uncertainty. She flamed in determined earnestness at times when only fire could clear a path and then there was no withstanding her. What a picture of a life adorned with good works who had devoted herself to the service of the church and the training up of young women. And when she came to pass, only praise was said of her and it was her good works that were remembered. What are you building your life? As you build your life, what are people knowing you for? What are you seeking to be recognized for? But here's the second part. We got, went over that a little bit. Now here's the second part. We've got to move along because we've got to get to the parts we haven't gotten to yet. So verse 11, here Paul begins to speak about a woman's learning and how it should happen in the church. Let's be very clear about what this means. First, let's read it so you get it in your minds. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Let's stop right there. Let's take a look at what this means. This is often controversial. You guys know the culture enough to know that just reading this might cause someone to shiver because of what it is saying and how out of line it is with modern day culture. But let's just look at what it says. First, I want you to notice this. This is sometimes overlooked. I want you to notice that this is a call for women toward humble study of Scripture. It's a call for women to learn. Let a woman learn. Let it happen. Make sure it's happening in the church, Timothy, that a woman is learning and learning in the proper way. Let a woman learn. This is a call for women to study humbly under the direction of the leadership of the church. Now, I want you to understand that in the first century context that this was written, this would not have been seen as condescending. It would have been seen as some opportunity that was being given to this church. Uh, first century Judaism did not encourage women to learn. They were not encouraged to learn. They were allowed to go to a synagogue. They weren't barred from it, but no one ever told them that they ought to. Greek culture wasn't much better. In the Greek culture, the, 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 the um, respectable Greek woman would never leave the house. She would only ever see her husband. She would never at any time appear in a public gathering or public assembly. Uh, one rabbinical opinion of the time stated, and I quote, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. That's the prevailing attitude. Women are not to be really a part of the synagogue. Women are not really to be a part of public assembling. That's the Greek culture. Many rabbis are saying, let's not even give women the opportunity to learn. We don't want them to be responsible for knowing Scripture. And yet here, Paul is saying, let a woman learn. Let her learn. It's an imperative. Now he uses the word quietly, and I want you to understand that this word quietly is used uh, throughout the Scriptures. It's used in the book of Acts. When, when, the, 
when the, Paul is about to address a big crowd, he hushes them. And this word hush, the, a hush falling over the crowd, it's the same word. A quiet comes over them. It's referring to this idea that someone's about to talk and I'm going to get in a posture to listen. Someone's about to teach and I'm going to be ready to hear. We know that this word doesn't necessarily mean full and complete utter silence. We know that because this word is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul encourages believers to do their work quietly. He's not saying that construction workers shouldn't use hammers and nails because that's going to be too loud. He's not saying that orators need to only whisper because that's going to be... He's not, ma- he's not concerned with matters of volume. He's referring to more of an inward attitude of the heart, uh, a submission, a calm. It's a hushed life that's not boisterous, seeking attention, seeking to be the center of attention. This idea of learning quietly means to hush your soul, to sit under some teaching, to quiet your life so that you can be taught. It has to do with meekness. A willing sacrifice of your ambition to be the center, to be known, and to submit yourself under the taught Word of God. This is what he's meaning when it says, let a woman learn quietly. I just want to emphasize this, that we want to have our women's ministries shaped by this text. We want our women to learn. We don't want to withhold any teaching from our women, and we want them to learn the Word of God. And I think that this text is a call for women to study and to be willing to learn and grow and understand Scripture. I was recently talking to a woman in our church that was part of other small groups, and said, she said something along the lines of, I've been in women's Bible studies where no one ever studied the Bible. It was all kind of fluffy and shallow. And her response was, but I want to learn the Word of God. And she was thankful for some of the women in our church who had read a book that was pushing them back to study Scripture on their own. And I think that is exactly what we want to fight for here in our congregation, is that our women are being equipped in Scripture. Equipped to know the Word of God. Equipped to know sound doctrine. They're equipped in this way. We want them to learn. And so this is a call for women toward humble study. Secondly, let's not forget the rest of it. This is a call for proper submission. He goes on to describe, I think, more fully what he means by learning quietly in verse 12. He says the women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. You say, what does that mean, Paul? I think verse 12 is the answer. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Say, what does it mean to learn quietly? It is a call to proper submission over qualified male authority. She is to submit to that. She is not to usurp authority in the church. She is to submit to it in such a way that she supports it, upholds it, prays for it. But the call on the woman is not to take the role of teacher in the church, in the corporate gathering. She's not to be holding authority, the authority of office in the church. She is to not usurp roles or have those roles in the body as it gathers and as it publicly pronounces the word of God and as we gather in the corporate assembly. uh, The woman is not to have that kind of authority in the church. So this is teaching us that her role is different. Now let's go back to Genesis and just remind ourselves it's not worse. 
It's different. Women are equal in dignity and value, Genesis 1. Women are both parts of the redemptive plan of God, that's also Genesis 1. And Genesis 2 will remind us that their roles will be different. And so God has designed, let's be crystal clear, let's not beat around the bush. This is what God has designed, that women are not called to exercise authority or to teach men in the public assembly of the church. You say, well, should they teach it all? Well, I hope. I hope that their conversations are seasoned with truth and they speak the truth in love. I know Aquila and Priscilla took alongside Apollos and both that husband and wife duo taught Apollos the word of God more diligently. There was that kind of aspect of teaching going on. I have been edified by women in the small group setting where they've shared the truths that they're learning and, and, and the beauty of the gathered church is that everyone has different roles and responsibilities and we can learn from one another. But when it comes to leadership in the church and the public teaching of the Word of God, that is reserved for men. Susan Hunt, commentating on this passage, said, Paul did not patronize women by pussyfooting around this issue. He gave them credit for understanding that submission has nothing to do with status. Submission is about function. That's an important statement. Submission is not about your status. It is about your function. So women, your status and dignity before God and in the church is not dependent on the things you can or can't do. Your status and dignity and worth is not dependent on the certain gifts you have. Your status and dignity are dependent on the unchanging reality that you are, first of all, an image bearer of a holy God. And second of all, you are a blood-bought daughter of the King. That's why you belong. You are worthy because of what Christ has done for you and how God has made you, and you have a place to play and to fit in in the church. What the Bible is teaching here is that there's a differentiation in roles. But differentiation of roles does not mean differentiation in dignity. Submission doesn't have to do with your status. Think about this. Think about what you do at a broken traffic light when the rain's coming down like it has been and the traffic lights aren't working and you come to a four-way stop. Just to illustrate kind of what we're talking about. You come to a stop, and let's say there's cars coming on every direction. Now, what you do first is you stop. You guys all know the drill, right? What do you normally do in there? What you're not doing, at least I hope what you're not doing, is you're saying, oh, the traffic light's not on. That means I have the right to just plow through and forward and go at my own leisure. Now, what happens if you do that? You're running into people. You're hurting people. Order is being disrupted. There's going to be accidents happening. What you all know to do is that there has to be a semblance of order. And so you will stop. You will look. And if a car is going, you will submit to that car and let it go first. You will voluntarily not remove first. You will allow it to happen in such a way that order is kept. You are willing to pause you're willing to evaluate. Now, this is an imperfect analogy, but this is kind of the analogy of the women in the church. Their role is not to be the ones that are plowing forward, disregarding any order. They are to pause and watch the leadership of the church, to watch where the leadership is taking them. And the women are to be on board insofar as they're following Scripture and following Jesus to support and pray for and back this leadership of the church. 
Now, if you have a hard time swallowing this, let me just remind you of the Trinity. Are the members of the Trinity equal? Yeah. Equal in worth, equal in worthiness of worship. We should worship the Father. We should worship the Son. We should worship the Holy Spirit. All members of the Trinity have equal value. We worship them all. But you know what they did to redeem mankind? The Father sent the Son. The Son submitted to the Father. When the Son submitted to the Father, He was not for a moment lesser than the Father. But He voluntarily submitted Himself to the will of the Father to please the Father, to glorify the Father. He entered into creation to die for the sins of His people. He did this out of love. He did this for the joy set before Him. He then paid for the sins of His people, rose from the dead, and offers free forgiveness of sins to everyone who trusts Him. This the Son did in submission, the Bible says, to the Father. Submission is not a lower calling. Remember this. Submission is not a lower calling. Submission is reflective of Jesus Christ Himself. And if ever for a split second you begin to think, oh, to be submitting is to be lower and it's to be... Uh, it's a lesser responsibility. You could remind yourself that when I submit the way God has called me to submit, I, in a way, am reflecting the submission of the Son to the Father. I am being Christ-like. What a privilege to be called to this. Now, some interpreters of this passage will say, well, Paul was just addressing the first century. First century situations, times have changed. This doesn't apply Today, and most of the churches that have women elders and women pastors and women preachers take that view, that things have changed and this doesn't really apply to us anymore. I would challenge that reading by pointing them to verse 13. He describes the role of the woman to learn quietly and all submissiveness, verse 11, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. And you might say, well, that's just for those days. We've changed. But the problem is, in verse 13, Paul connects these roles to the very creation of man and woman. Look at this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You say, why is this the order within the church? Why is it that men are to be the ones teaching and exercise authority? And why is it that women are to learn in submissiveness to the taught word and to the exercise of godly authority? Why is it that way? It is because that's how God made it in the Garden of Eden. That's how God designed it with Adam and Eve. That was always the original intention, is that man was given a specific role and that women were given a specific role. And that carries on even into the church. This is part of the creation before the fall. Some have also said that as a result of the fall, that's why men should lead, or men were leading, and that women, and, and now in Christ, those roles just get evened out and, and there's no differentiation. No, it goes back to pre-fall. It goes back to pre-Genesis 3. It goes back to the very creation of male and female. So, the call here is to submit to godly authority, not because the godly authority is perfect, but because it was part of the creation design. 
I understand it's hard in our culture to do this. Our culture is allergic to authority. We hear authority and we hear authoritarian, right? We hear submission and we think oppression. Sometimes that's because we've had authoritarian authority and it was abusive. Uh, it might be because we've seen oppression and it was in the name of submission. But in the church, there is to be a different picture of what these things really look like. It ought to be different. Could it be that Satan knows authority is a gift from God? And that Satan hates the church and wants to disrupt it in every way he can? And so he is all about us being suspicious of authority? He's doing everything we can, he can to cause us to believe that any kind of authority is oppressive and any kind of submission is oppressive? And could it be that if we were to have a more biblical view of both authority and submission, that we would see that it's actually a beautiful thing? Just to point this out before we move on, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 23. All the way back to the very end of King David's reign. And he's kind of given his last words. In fact, the subtitle or the editors put in my ESV Bible over the chapter 23 that this is called The Last Words of David. And he kind of has this last poem that he composes as he reflects on his life as king. And listen to what he says in verse 1. He starts out by saying, Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Do you get who's talking yet? He's introducing himself quite dramatically. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The rock or God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, now listen up. What is it, David, that you finally want to say? Here it is. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Friends, Godly authority is like a sunrise. Godly rulers over a people are like rain that makes the grass grow. Rain in the desert that brings the weary land life. It's like the cloudless morning and the sun breaks through. It's beautiful. Godly authority is a blessing to everyone who's underneath it. See, think about this. What if the person in authority over you made it their own personal commitment to do you unceasing good? To do good for you no matter the cost to you or the cost to them, they would be committed to you. They would wisely nurture you. They would commit themselves to you. They would commit to developing and equipping and helping and encouraging you, serving you, empowering you. Giving you direction. I envision a father with a son getting down on his knee, putting his arm around his child, pointing out at the world ahead, saying, Son, this is the world ahead. I'm your father. I love you. Yes, I am your authority. But if you follow my words, I will do nothing but bless you. 
You will listen to me and you'll be wise. You will succeed. You will be blessed. This is what godly authority does. It dawns on them like the morning light. David said this at the end of his life reflecting on a career of authority. And he said, godly authority is good. It's a delight to submit to godly authority, isn't it? You ever been in a situation where your boss or one of your leaders you just trusted? You trusted their heart, that they had your best in mind, and you knew that if you were to submit to their direction, they would do nothing but good for you. Friends, that's what Jesus is like, <laughs> submitting to him and submitting to his authority. And that is what godly leadership is to be like. And so when a woman is called, learn with all submissiveness, it ought to be a call to the leaders to exercise godly authority, and it ought to be a reminder to everyone in submission to remember that to submit is to be blessed by godly blessing that comes through godly authority. And so the woman is called to learn in all submissiveness, to, to submit themselves to the leadership. She's not to take the responsibility to teach or to lead in a, a special office kind of way that the Bible gives. In just a little bit, in fact, the next passage in chapter 3, uh, Paul will lay out qualifications for the leaders of the church. Before we get there, we've got to finish this last section in verse 15. We look at now... We've looked at a woman's appearance and what she ought to think about as she's thinking about what to wear. We've looked at a woman's learning and how she is to learn in church, how that takes place. And lastly, let's look at a woman's childbearing. Childbearing. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You guys got that one already on your own, right? I didn't need to discuss this one. This is a toughie. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and there's certain things that just come out and some things you've got to really wrestle with. Uh, let me just give you what I think is the right interpretation of this text. First, we've got to ask the question, who's the she? She will be saved through childbearing. There's different viewpoints on who that might be. Some say it might be Eve. I don't think it can be Eve. And the reason it can't be Eve is because of the rest of the verse. It says she will be saved through childbearing. A she is a singular pro feminine pronoun. And then at the end of the verse, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So the she, if it were referring to Eve, it would not make sense that it's now saying they. So it's referring to a collective she. The she must mean the she who refers to all of womankind, uh, women in general. It's a collective she. So she, it says, will be saved. Women will be saved through childbearing. You say, okay, what does it mean to be saved? I think we have to conclude that it doesn't mean that they are saved from sin for salvation through having children. I don't think that's what that means. That would contradict the rest of the Bible, which teaches that salvation is by grace alone through faith. So I don't think it's teaching about spiritual salvation. But the word saved, sozo in Greek, also can sometimes mean preserved. It can mean rescued. And it can be referring to something more temporary, something not related to salvation, uh, uh, being rescued or preserved from something. So here's what I think Paul is getting at. 
He refers to Eve and Adam and their fall. Adam not being deceived, the woman's deceived. He's speaking there of the dysfunctional leadership. Adam didn't lead well. Eve should have waited for Adam and she outstepped her bounds and took from the fruit and so sinned and became a transgressor. Transgressor, And now she's saying, what's going to happen next? She, that is women, will be saved. That is preserved or rescued through childbearing. Okay, what in the world do you, do you mean, Eric? What does this mean? Here's what I think it means. Because of the fall, and because of specifically Eve's role in the fall, she was the one who's deceived, it says there. She's the one who took of the fruit, it says there. Because of her role in the fall, there's kind of a stigma on womankind that exists. That she's the one who led humanity into sin. She's the, the one, and you could maybe even think about people pointing the finger. It was Eve. It's a stigma on the human race. And what Paul is saying here is that women will be saved from that stigma by doing their part in undoing the curse, undoing the, 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 the fall, by raising up their children to know the Gospel as they do it in faith and in love and in holiness and with self-control. Now, at the very least, we know that this means that Paul thinks that women raising their children is a high priority. That's what we know for sure. We know that there's a high priority, there's a value on childbearing and child raising as they do it, as the women commit to it in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, this is something important to hear in our culture that sometimes demeans children or the value of having children, or the role of a woman in raising children. Sometimes uh, it is looked down upon for a wife to stay home and be with her children. Sometimes it's looked down upon for a wife to devote her time to raising up her children and being at home with them and being a part of their lives and investing deeply in them. And Paul is saying, no, this is not something that's insignificant. This is a very crucial part of the woman's role is they are to be saved through childbearing, not saved as in they get saved uh, because they have children and raise them, but they're removing the stigma of the curse one individual at a time as they raise up their children to be those who are saved by the gospel. This doesn't in any way guarantee the salvation of children. That does, however, point to the value of raising up children in a woman's role in that. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, what if I don't have any children? And God has called some even married couples to not have children. You might even be thinking, well, what if I'm single? Well, God has called some of the women to be single. And so that means you won't have children if you're single. God has called you to fully devote your time to the Lord, and that's a blessing. It's a gift that God has given you. But I think the reality here is that God has designed women in such a way that they're really, really good with children. God has designed them to be amazing at knowing children and caring for children and nurturing children. And that where there are women who have been called into motherhood because they have now had children, where are, there are mothers, Paul wants to emphasize, this matters. Your role is to invest in your children. Your role is to care for them and to raise them up in faith and in love and in holiness and in self-control. That is a top priority for a mother. That is a calling for a mother to raise their children. 
But I think also, women in general are uniquely gifted at raising up the next generation of children. So that even single women can, in a sense, have spiritual children. They can be mothers to many children. I like what Elizabeth Elliot said relating to this. She wrote of a single woman. She said, she can have children. She may be a spiritual mother, as was Amy Carmichael, by offering up her singleness, transformed for the good of far more children than a natural mother may produce. She's saying, yeah, she can have children, spiritual children, children she cares for, children she raises up. In the difficulty of this passage, at the very least, we can see that it is the role of a mother to really care for their children, to raise them up in faith and love and holiness and self-control, and for women in general to understand that God has gifted them in this way, that they are able to do this in a unique way, and so complement the work of the church by focusing on the raising up of a godly generation of children. Charles Spurgeon, I promised another illustration, attributes his love for truth to an old maid, an old single maid that lived around his house when he was a child that would talk theology with him, that would talk spiritual things, teach him theology, read to him. But even beyond that, he talked about his mother in some of those glowing terms. Guys, there is nothing in the world like a godly mother. What a blessing. If you have one, you can praise the Lord for her. And he said of his mother, and I just, this moved me just to read this. He, he says this, I'm sure that in my early youth, no teaching ever made such an impression on my mind as the instruction of my mother. Neither can I conceive that to any child there can be one who will have such influence over the young heart as the mother who has so tenderly cared for her offspring. Neither could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. Certainly I have not the powers of speech with which to set forth my valuation of the choice blessing which the Lord bestowed upon me in making me the son of the one who prayed for me and prayed with me. How can I ever forget her tearful eyes? when she warned me to escape from the wrath to come? How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms around my neck she prayed, oh, that my son might live before thee, Lord. He tells the story of his father walking home and he got into the house and he thought no one was home until he heard a mumbling, a mumbling in one of the back rooms and he didn't know what it was and he walked in and he kind of peeked open the door And there was his wife, Spurgeon's mother, on her knees, pleading for Charles, little Charles, that he would be saved and he would be useful for God. If God has given you the role of being a mother, raising your children is a glorious calling. And if God has not given you that calling, he has called you in a different sense to raise up spiritual children and care for them and bring them the truth. My wife is a great mother. She is. I'm thrilled that I get to raise my children with her. But I also pray that there would be more mothers in her life than just Ashley, right? I pray for 
other women to invest in my children, not just my daughters, my son as well. The women who would come into their life and be ones who would love them and nurture them and embrace them and admonish them and pray for them and cry with them and laugh with them. I pray for those people in my kids' life. It's a sacred calling. It's a sacred calling for women to invest in the raising up of the children in the faith. God has given us roles. As we said in the beginning, God did not just say, here's the ticket to heaven, figure out the rest. He has given us roles to play, order in the church, order in the family, that we ought to look and study and figure out how does this work for us. Out of love, He has given us these amazing roles. And may we, trusting Him and out of love for Him, submit ourselves to those callings. And so then build a culture of love and commitment and truth where the church will be a culture of people being children, being raised up in the truth so that they know and love their Savior. Father, thank you so much for your word, the beauty of the design that you've given us. Thank you that you've given us roles to play. And I pray, Lord, that as difficult as this passage is, it would be edifying to us, that it would shape the way we think about our lives and our roles in the church, and that as we do these things together, that you would build us up into a church that gives glory to you. We pray this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen.